and I think about this all the time, if I have to spend the rest of my life in prison for a crime I didn't commit, I need the world to know what happened and how it happened. Injustice Anywhere presents Snow Files, the wrongful conviction of Jamie Snow and how they got away with it. Jamie Snow was wrongfully convicted in 2001 for the 1991 murder and armed robbery of William Little, a gas station attendant in Bloomington, Illinois. Jamie is currently serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole in Stateville Prison. Jamie has always maintained his innocence, and he continues to do so today. The violent and senseless murder of William Little took place on Easter Sunday while Jamie was across town having dinner with his family. In the months and years that followed, police were unable to solve the crime, and the case went cold. Over eight years would pass before two overzealous rookie detectives came along to attempt to crack the case. Solving a cold case like this one in a small town would be a career builder for sure. These two detectives had no qualms with building a case using unreliable jailhouse informants and faulty eyewitness identification. These two detectives were willing to convict Jamie Snow by any means necessary, regardless of facts. In the years following Jamie's conviction, new information has come forward to confirm that police misconduct and bad lawyering sent the wrong person to prison for William Little's murder. There is no physical evidence linking Jamie to the crime. Jamie's wrongful conviction has not gone unnoticed. Jamie has an army of well-informed supporters. Jamie's case was featured on Crime Watch Daily in 2016, and his case was most recently investigated on the Truth and Justice podcast with Bob Ruff. Jamie is currently represented by the University of Chicago's Exoneration Project. Jamie's attorneys believe strongly in his innocence, and they are fighting valiantly for his freedom. Sadly, in cases like these, the wheels of justice turn very slowly. Jamie has served nearly 21 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. The fight for Jamie's freedom will not end until he is back home with his family. Please join us as we discuss the Jamie Snow case. Welcome to Snow Files. I want to start off this statement by thanking Bob Ruff and his Truth and Justice Cup podcast for featuring me on his program. I want to thank everyone who takes the time and effort to make that project, you know, run like it does. Mike, Zach all the, the uh, transcribers of the episodes and I, and I really want to send a big thank you to uh, Jim Clemente for his involvement in his work in trying to make some expert sense of all of this. I want to send an even bigger thank you out to the Truth and Justice army of listeners. You know, without you guys, there is no Truth and Justice podcast. It's just a group of people talking into a microphone. So, thank you for allowing me into your weekly lives and for trying to help us find out who took the life of Bill Little on March 31st, 1991, Easter Sunday. Those of you who have reached out to me on a personal level, you know, I want you to know that you've made the last few months the easiest of the last 20 years of of this nightmare for me. You know, it, it seems that every time I get to a point where I feel I just can't go on, God sends someone to lift me up. This time, in an army of someone's, and so from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank you. The purpose of this project is to look at the case through a different lens with a different focus. Bob's focus was to try to figure out who killed the little, and to be honest, he may have very well gotten us onto the right track. No time will only tell, and we still want to try to solve it, so we're not trying to stop that. You know, but our focus is going to be a little more on the trial and the evidence of misconduct and corruption that that took place. You know, just about every wrongful conviction contains misconduct and corruption. If I have to spend the rest of my life in prison for a crime I didn't commit, I need the world to know what happened and how it happened. The concept of crowdsourcing the hunt for, for information is still in play here. You know, we need listeners to help us, to help us hunt for, you know, certain evidence and people. 
uh, and as we go along, you'll you'll see what we mean. I mean, there's still stuff out there that I, I think people can help us with. So, you know, and I, and I, and I, and I want to say, you know, Bill Hill isn't the only victim in this case. You know, of course, he has shouldered the heaviest burden. Uh, he, he lost his life. His, his family has carried the burden of his loss for almost 30 years now. Myself and my family are victims of this. We have shouldered a heavy burden for many years now as well. But what I want people to know is that the people of Bloomington, Normal, and McLean County are victims in this tragedy as well. A crime of violence was committed on one of your citizens. Imagine all the people in that neighborhood who began living in fear after the crime because the person wasn't caught. It's almost 30 years now, guys, and he still hasn't been caught. The citizens of Bloomington, Normal, and McLean County deserve justice, and you haven't received it yet. We're going to put it all out there for you guys, everything. We're not going to spoon feed you. We're going to put it all on the table and let you decide based on all the evidence if I'm guilty or not. And more importantly, was my trial fair? Was it corrupt? This is not a knock on the McLean County State's Attorney's Office as it is today. Or the BPD as it is today. There has always been good and honest truth-seeking, justice-minded people in both departments. I'm, I'm absolutely sure of that. This is, however, a well-deserved knock on the McLean County State's Attorney's Office under the direction and supervision of Charles Ryder and Tina Griffin as well as the actions of a, a few uh, BPD officers at the time. And when we're done, if you don't believe in what we're saying, and you don't see the clear picture, then tell us. Or even tell us along the way, if you need to, but base your opinion on the evidence, not on your bias, because the evidence uh, is what we're gonna use. So, you know, because here's what everyone listening this should consider. This is what I really want people to, to think about, you know. You guys set the standards for your, your 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 law enforcement officials in your community. You elect your state's attorneys, your judges, your sheriffs whose policies drive his police force. If you say with your silence, you know, that the, what they did in this case is okay, then you're saying it's okay to do the same thing to someone you love. You know, I've said this before, and I, I will always say it, you know, the frame game doesn't just happen in Chicago and New York, you know, Pittsburgh and Dallas. I'm going to prove to you it happens in the small cities as well. What you guys do with it will determine if justice is ever served in this case. Justice for Bill, justice for myself, and the community of Bloomington Normal in McLean County is really what I want. So, tune in and... Let us know what you think. And I appreciate all of you. That's it. Snow Files is being produced by Free Jamie Snow in coordination with Injustice Anywhere. Please join us as we present new, unheard, compelling information about Jamie Snow's case. It's time to get to work. Danny Martinez had driven his car to the Clark gas station to fill a leaky tire at the air pump and to grab some sodas. He was at the air pump filling the tire when the two police officers arrived on the scene at 8.21 p.m. The officers were responding to a silent alarm that had been pressed from inside the gas station at 8.16 p.m. 18-year-old gas station attendant Bill Little was shot twice in the heart during the suspected holdup and he died before being discovered by police. Here's Jamie Snow to tell you about the night of the crime. What I really want to focus on today is, is giving you guys a clear picture of what happened at the gas station that night. The call came out that there was a, an armed robbery at Clark Gas Station. The two officers who responded were Jeff Elo and Paul Williams. Paul Williams was a sergeant at the time, and he is the glue that is going to hold together exactly what I'm saying. Paul Williams placed himself in a position on the corner of Linden and Empire where he had an unobstructed view of the gas station. He was focused in on the door 
to make sure that nobody went in or came out, and he was actually able to see inside the gas station and didn't see any movement. And I responded and came up Chestnut Street and turned on to Linden, uh, going north, and pulled up, shut my lights off, and Officer Pilo arrived at about the same time, and he got out of his car. And I pulled my squad up a little closer to the intersection of Linden and Empire so that I could see the front of the gas station. I stayed in my car uh, trying to see if uh, there was some movement inside the station or uh, just exactly what was going on before I got out of my car. Now, when you arrived and you heard Officer Pilo uh, say he was president of the scene also, you started moving a little, a little closer or did you just exit your squad? Nope, I stayed in my squad. I pulled up uh, my car a little bit closer to the intersection so that I could see a little bit more of what was going on. So the point I'm, I'm alluding to finally is from your vantage point, there really was no obstruction of your view of the entrance and exit to the... The only obstruction was cars that drove by on the street, you know, intermittently. And you saw no movement? I didn't see anything. You know, we can try to say that there were semi-trucks driving by or that, you know, uh, their view was obstructed from, you know, gas pumps or, or this or that. We, we, we can say that, but we have to rely on what they said. What they said is what's important. It's not what, what we say. It, it, it's what the police officers say. He heard Jeff Pilo say that he was 1023. I'm, I'm assuming that means he's on the scene. Jeff Pilo, he says that he got, he got himself into a position where he could see a Hispanic male that was down putting air in his tire. That's Danny Martinez. Now, Danny was putting air in his right front tire of his car. He testified that the front of the car was pointed north, the rear of the car was south. The air pump island was on the easternmost fence line of the Clark gas station. So in order for Jeff Pilo to be able to see this Hispanic male that was crouched down by his tire, he had to have been on the easternmost part of Credit Union parking lot. From that vantage point, he could see down the, the fence line to Martinez. He could see the Martinez license plate, and he could see the door. So he had an unobstructed view of Martinez and the door. There's been, you know, there's been speculation of how his sight may have been obstructed, but it wasn't. When Pilo was watching Martinez, he tried to run the license plate. The dispatcher was giving him a hard time because the computer was out. You just want me to hold the lights in there because I don't expect this to be up for relief. Yeah, well, this In case you could not understand that, the dispatcher asks Pilo if he wants her to hold the plate because she doesn't expect leads to be back up before her shift is over. Officer Pilo responds, This vehicle just left the parking lot. If this is a real armed robbery, I'd like to have the 28. Thank you. When he was trying to run that license plate, Danny Martinez was still crossed down by the right front tire of his car. From the credit union, walk towards the east side of the credit union's parking lot, standing there watching the Clark Station. And the Clark Station parking lot was a older car blue with a male putting air in the tires. As I was watching it, I watched in front of the station. There was no, I couldn't see any movement or anything inside. And the license plate number of uh, blue vehicles in the lot. One of the dispatchers was giving me a hard time about running a plate because Leeds was down. The uh, male walks from his car towards the station. He stops looks back towards his car, turns, walks towards the station some more, stops, turns around, goes back to his vehicle, got in it, I can't remember if he backed out of the lot or if he did a U-turn and drove out of the lot, he drove westbound on Empire Street. After he did that, I started walking across Empire Street on the east side of the lot. Now, speaking of Mr. Martinez, in that vehicle, and you said that vehicle was by the air pumps? Yes. And you said when you first observed him, it looked like he was squatting down by the front 
passenger side? Yes, the, the, the front passenger tire. There's a point where he was crouched down there with the air hose coming to him as if he was putting air in the Then you said he got up for that position, walked towards the car station office, stopped, turned, looked at his vehicle, then turned around and started to proceed back to the car station, stopped a second time, looked at his vehicle, walked back to his vehicle, and left parking. Yes. I can't remember if he walked around his car and then got in it or if he just went through the driver's door. That part I just don't remember. But at any time, did you order him off the line? No, I never, I never spoke to him at all. The, only, the closest I ever come to speaking to him that night was when I pointed at him and informed other officers that he had just been in the line. Now, when he left his vehicle and walked first time towards the Clark Station, how far, and I know it's difficult, but how far do you think he was away from his vehicle before he stopped and turned around? Wasn't that far? 20 feet maybe? 25? Uh, I don't know the exact distance. Would it help if you did any relationship to he was halfway to the park door, or he was closer to his car, or... He was closer to his vehicle than he was to the front of the business. Okay. Now, the second time, after he stopped, he turned around, looked at his car, and then turned back around to walk towards the store. How much further do you think he walked? I want to say he got within like 15 feet of the front door. He was at, he was at an angle, I want to say he's like 15 feet in front of the door. So he's fairly close yeah. to the, the front of the store. Yes. Okay. Now, he leaves, another truck pulls up while you're walking up. Mm -hmm. And you order them to leave. Yes. Do you know where they went? They went Initially they went to the credit union lot on the south side. They actually went where I told them to and, and stopped. I remember seeing them stopped over there. Yeah. That vehicle wasn't there prior to you getting there. No. And you actually observed the people in the vehicle. Yes. And at no time today, those people in that vehicle, the second vehicle now, which I think you said earlier was a truck. Pickup truck, yes. None of those people you observed going to the building. They never entered the building, no. They got out of the vehicle, but they never went into the building. When Tilo was running that license plate, Paul Williams was already watching the door. According to Danny Martinez, he claims that this person was backing out of the gas station. And remember remember this, this is very important for later on. He says the guy he saw was backing out of the gas station with his hands in his pocket, but he, he leans into the door backwards to exit the gas station. So after you put in your tire, you were going into the build, the business area to purchase a pop. Okay. And then as you're walking towards the business, you observe someone backing out, or did you observe someone backing out while you were still putting air in your tire? No, I observed someone backing out at the gas station door uh, backwards, and at that moment, like a Stated that my car was about to die and it kind of backfired again. And I turned around so it wouldn't die. By the time I turned back around, the person. So, so you were walking towards the building when you observed someone backing out. That's correct. Okay. And can you describe this person you saw back, uh, observed backing out? Uh, no, I I can describe him when I when I turned around and saw him. Uh, he was maybe five nine, because I'm five eight, five nine, five ten. Uh, brownish blonde hair and ball cap. He had a, a spring jacket, I mean, considered a spring jacket, and he had both his hands in his pocket. And then you, so you're observing backing out. Your car starts to 
stutter, uh, sputter a little bit as he turned back to see what's going on with the car. Turned back, and at that time, how you and him almost meet face to face? That's correct. As it was stated earlier in, in Crow's papers, they were three foot apart. Uh, uh, and that's where he was, to me, he seemed like he was kind of shocked because his eyes just opened up. And uh, that's how I recognized him. After, as you're walking up, uh, he, he, he almost walks into you. That's correct. You're about three feet apart. You observe him go which way? I saw him go in between the uh, gas station and my uh, fence, and he walked towards the alley, back alley. When you were walking from your car towards the business, did you see anybody inside the business other than the person you observed backing out? No. When you first saw the person backing out of the business, was he already out or was he at the door? Or? He was at the door uh, with the door like halfway open. Okay, so he was partially already out right. when you first observed him. Right. Did a police officer saw you? Uh, after I saw the gentleman, and he went through the building in my chain link fence. I started walking maybe two steps and I heard a gentleman say, back up. And I turned around and I saw an officer across the street at the credit union. I don't know if it was credit union back then or not. And uh, he said, he had mentioned, did you see anybody? I said, yeah, I just saw him. And I just saw some guy just go through the, the grass here. And he says, uh, I told him I lived next door. And he said, well, why don't you back up your car? And uh, going home. And he told the gentleman that was in the black truck, or a gentleman that was by the black truck, to get in the truck and get out of here. So, sequencing everything together, while Martinez is down putting air in the tires, Williams is already watching the door. Martinez is down putting air in the tires, Pilo is watching him, he's running the license plate, and he's watching the door at the same time. Martinez claims that guy's backing out of the gas station while he's crouched down by the tire. He gets up and starts walking towards the door. He stopped, turned, and looked at his car. And according to his testimony, he says he turned back around. And him and the guy were face to face, one to three feet away from each other. Yet they actually stood there and looked at each other for a second or two. Before any of that stuff happened, Williams was already watching the door. Kilo had an unobstructed view of Martinez and the door. The two police officers were in position with clear views of the Clark gas station entrance door and the parking lot at the precise time that Danny Martinez claims he saw a man exit the station door and come face to face with him in the parking lot. Two police officers were in position with clear views of the Clark gas station entrance door and the parking lot at the precise time that Danny Martinez claims that he saw a man exit the gas station door and come face to face with him in the parking lot. The two officers on the scene were looking right at the gas station door, and Martinez never saw the man Martinez claims he saw. When I got the tape-recorded interview, and I listened to this tape-recorded interview, I I felt like I was going to have a nervous, actually have a nervous breakdown. I had to stop recording, rewind it, listen to it again, stop it, rewind it, listen to it again. I was like, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Pilo saw Danny stop and turn and look at his car and then turn back around and continue walking towards the door. He had an unobstructed view of Danny and the door. There was nobody there and the state knew it. And when it came time to go to trial, they asked Jeff to lie about it. He said he wasn't going to lie about it. They said, just answer the questions that uh, we asked you. And, and that's what he did. So many people have tried to pick and shake the story of Danny Martinez and Jeff Kilo and Paul Williams. But the fact is, the three of them were there at the same time. You can't divorce from the sequencing of events in the scenario, Paul Williams, Jeff Kilo, and Danny Martinez. You have to consider the three of them together. When Danny was crouched down by that tire, Williams was already watching the door. It's a fact. This is the state's evidence.
Kilo was trying to run that license plate, Williams was already watching the door. Danny was still crouched down by the front right, the right front tire, and Kilo had an unobstructed view to that door. So the idea that 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 this 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 person could could murder William Little with both of these police officers on the scene and 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 in their own words focused in on the the gas station and actually able to see inside the gas station. And this guy could get out and come face to face with Danny and get around get around the the, the corner without without these two police officers seeing is just ludicrous. It's mind boggling to me that anybody would think that and look. I challenge anyone to look at the documents that we're going to put up and tell me something different. There is much more to discuss about Danny Martinez. In this episode, we prove that Martinez's testimony has been fully discredited by police interviews and the testimony of both police officers who were on the scene. In episode two, we will break down Martinez's trial testimony and we will also show you in great detail how his miraculous ID of Jamie years after failing to identify him multiple times shortly after the murder, is completely unreliable. My name is Bruce Fisher. I am one of three co-hosts who will be bringing Jamie's story to you each week. I am the co-founder of Injustice Anywhere, an all-volunteer organization working to bring more attention to wrongful convictions. Tam Alex brought Jamie's case to our group's attention. Jamie already had a well-organized group of supporters long before Injustice Anywhere came along. The information available made it easy for our advisory board to properly review Jamie's case. Injustice Anywhere is pleased to sponsor the Snow Files podcast. Anyone who takes the time to review the facts of Jamie Snow's case knows that he is innocent. I'm Leslie Pires, and I'm a really good friend of Jamie's, and I wholeheartedly believe in his innocence. We met through the Truth and Justice podcast, and I started writing to him, and our friendship just took off. I think that Jamie really did the best job of explaining the value and this kind of bond when he wrote to me and he said, without friends or family or just one person who gives a damn about someone in jail, what could the purpose in life really be? If no one else sees value in you, how can you ever see it in yourself? So I am his friend and his supporter, and it's my job to raise up his voice in any circumstance and validate his worth and his suffering and to really help to set him free. And I hope the podcast does that. I don't have a legal background, but I've studied the corruption that makes his a wrongful conviction. My professional background is as a marine scientist working with biology and technology in the field and with the scientific method. So although I'm sure you'll hear my passion about Jamie's case, I will only consider the facts when presenting the evidence to you. And it's just my honor to be here today. My name is Tammy Alexander. Most people from this case know me as Tam Alex. I've been working on Jamie's case for around 10 years now. I had read an article about his case, and it seemed really questionable to me at the time. I had never written anyone in prison before, but for some reason felt compelled to write Jamie and let him know that I didn't know if he was guilty or not. But from the little I'd read, I'm sure he didn't get a fair trial. And he sent me everything he had. It took me a few months to go through everything, but as I moved through, things just weren't adding up, and I became more and more convinced of his innocence every day. It helped that he would answer every question I had, even the hard ones. Once I became convinced of his innocence, I had to help. So I started with setting up a website and social media. That was in October of 2010. Since then, we've had annual events in Bloomington. We've had newspaper articles written about his case. His case has been featured on Crime Watch Daily. And most recently on Truth and Justice podcast, Bob Ruff. There have been so many people that have helped along the way, but I would be remiss if I didn't talk about Ray. He's a former chief of police in the New Jersey area, and he learned about Jamie's case through his wife, Pam, who was Jamie's juvenile advocate back in the 80s. Ray has been an integral part of the investigation. He knows the police reports better than anyone. We have filed numerous FOIA requests and currently have a FOIA lawsuit pending against McLean County. Ray has done some amazing work, and I'm really looking forward to having him on the podcast to share his insights. I just want to add that we are very excited about the podcast and getting the entire story out to the public. 
Also, a huge thank you to Bruce and Leslie for all your hard work in putting this together. Leslie, who is the where and when? Can you set this up for us? Jamie says that you cannot divorce Officer Paul Williams, Officer Jeff Pilo, and Danny Martinez. What does Jamie mean by that? Pilo and Williams both arrived on the scene within seconds of each other, and Williams testified to that twice. Williams stated that he was across the street on the western front corner, and Pilo was across the street on the eastern front corner. They were both looking towards the front door, which was in the center between the two of them, so they had an overlapping vantage point. Neither saw someone leave that front door. The timing of the dispatch call proves that, as each had to radio in when they were 1023 on scene. Williams has always described that he first saw Pilo exit the squad car, walk on foot, and then cross Empire Street towards the gas station lot, and his description of Pilo's activities confirms his presence. Because why would he be able to describe everything that Pilo was doing if he wasn't there at that time? Furthermore, Pilo reported Martinez's presence and sudden departure from the lot to dispatch because he thought he was a suspect. And the timing of that is all recorded. At 8.21 and 14 seconds, Pilo asks dispatch to run Martinez's plate. And just 38 seconds later, he reports that his vehicle just left the parking lot and exclaims, quote, If this is a real armed robbery, I'd like to have the 28. Thank you. Just 72 seconds later, Pilo calls for rescue after finding the victim dead on the ground. Over the years, including at trial, many have speculated that Williams was late to the scene and didn't see the same things that Pilo saw, or that Pilo was distracted with his microphone and didn't see what Martinez did. But they were all there at the same time for those crucial few moments at about 8.21 p.m. Jamie mentions semi-trucks and gas pumps when he talks about possible view obstructions, and it's been speculated over the years that Pilo may not have seen the front door of the gas station because of a center island pump likely blocking his view of the door, or a semi-truck was passing by. But Williams was sitting at the intersection south of the Clark station door, and he noted car traffic, not semi-trucks. He was also watching the front door at the same time as Pilo, but from the southwest corner. So he was looking at the other side of that same gas pump at the same time as Pilo and reports no one leaving that door. Martinez also claimed that the suspect walked down the grass path to the alley, but he did not watch him walk down there. Pilo was standing directly across from that grass patch. Had he not seen the door because of the gas pumps, he would have seen someone walking on that grass towards the alley. Jamie makes a good point and that we have to rely on the evidence what the police reports say, what the police officers actually recorded they saw that night, and not speculation as to what could have happened. Tam, how significant is this Danny Martinez story? Well, actually, the cops didn't take Martinez's ID seriously in the beginning at all. There were two composites, and they only released one initially, and that one was not Martinez. It was another witness that we'll talk about later. So fast forward to 1993, late 1993, when the leads were dying, they released Martinez's composite. And actually, they released them both at that time. And that was against the judgment of the police spokesman, David Ogg. So David Ogg released a public statement saying that releasing a second composite went against FBI police training and was like putting a second string offense into a game when the first string doesn't get the job done. So we move on to 1996. They actually dropped the other composite and started solely using Martinez composites. What you have to understand is these composites didn't look anything alike. So something was happening here. They were just like dropping this other witness composite completely over the years. And you can see the timeline on the composite issue and the docs page on the podcast site to circle back. The significance of Martinez's story is that he was the only person on the scene when police arrived. Two police officers were on the scene at the same time Martinez was there, and one of them watched every move Martinez made until he left the scene, from the time he was airing his tires until he left the scene. Pilo described that. 
Martinez only ID'd Jamie nearly 10 years later, after failing to do so in an in-person lineup shortly after the crime and photo arrays that included multiple pictures of Jamie in them. He never ID'd Jamie. And also, his story changed several times over the years, and they still used him as a star witness in both Jamie and Susan's trials. Tim, what was so significant about Danny Martinez's movement and timing in the lot that night? I think the significance is that people try to make it muddy, which is very evident from the trial. I mean, that's the state's theory to muddy it up. But, you know, the facts are in the documents, and that's the state's evidence. So Martinez consistently claimed he heard two pops while filling up his tire and said his car was backfiring. The state consistently claimed that those were shots. Martinez said he saw someone exit the station as he was walking up, and then he says he came face-to-face with that person. But we know from the dispatch tape that Pilo was there watching Martinez from the time he was airing up his tires until the time he pulled out of the gas station. And I know this sounds repetitive, but I can't say it enough. There was somebody sitting there watching them, and it's in the police reports, and he even describes his movements from how far he was from the store before he turned around and got back into his car and left. We also know from the dispatch tape that Martinez left before Pilo even crossed the street. He was telling the dispatcher to hold the plate because the person left and he wanted to hold on to it in case it was a real armed robbery. We know from police reports that Williams stated that when he pulled up, he saw a car by the air pump. So they were all there at the same time and neither officer ever heard gunshots, even though Pilo was only feet away from Martinez's car when it should have been backfiring. But even if you want to say the backfire happened before either officer arrived, you cannot tell me that two police officers who approached on a silent alarm were watching the store and Pilo also watching Martinez from the time he was airing up his tires to the time he left, precisely describing his movements and did not see Martinez almost run into somebody. Or that Williams, who was watching the door the entire time, did not see anyone exit the station. It's just impossible. Danny Martinez and Officer Jeff Pilo both testified at Susan Claycomb's trial in 2000, where she was found not guilty. Susan, of course, was Jamie's co-defendant. Can you explain her relationship to Jamie and why she was implicated? Well, Susan Claycomb, or Susan Powell, which is her maiden name, was Jamie's sister-in-law. She was married to Tammy Snow's brother, which was Jamie's wife at the time. Tammy Snow was Susan's best friend. They adored each other. And she was also, of course, the aunt of Jamie's kids. And they were all very close. But Susan and Jamie didn't get along very well. They kind of bickered and bannered a lot. They didn't hang out together in a group, much less alone. When they were arrested, no one could even figure out why they dragged Susan into it because of their volatile relationship. She was pregnant and she actually had a child while she was in custody. During that time when she was in jail, they had offered her parole if she would say she drove Jamie to the gas station, but she never caved. She went to the trial facing the exact same charge as Jamie faced, which was murder. You know, it wasn't accessory or anything like that. It was murder. It was exactly what Jamie had, but she had a private attorney and she beat the case. He did a great job, and you'll hear more about Steve Skelton's work during this podcast. There's an amazing picture in the local paper. It's called the Panograph of Susan and Tammy Snow outside the courthouse hugging after Susan was acquitted. It's such a beautiful picture. We'll find it and post it on the Facebook page. What a lot of people don't know is that Jamie was in county jail at the time, and he was looking down from his window, looking at Tammy Snow and Susan crying. And you can just see Tammy's hair. She's got this long, blonde, wavy hair, but you can see Susan's face and she's crying. You know, it's just so, it's just such an incredible picture. Unfortunately, Susan passed away a few years ago from sepsis. It was uh, complications from surgery. But she always supported Jamie. She always supported his innocence. She attended annual events that we had in Bloomington. She was amazing, you know, an amazing supporter and an amazing voice for Jamie as someone who was acquitted. She also testified at Jamie's trial for him. And that's pretty interesting testimony, too, because she was pretty hostile. So we'll probably get to that, too. But that's, you know, uh, in a nutshell, Susan Powell Claycomb. Leslie. 
Jamie mentioned that the state's attorney asked Officer Pilo to lie during his trial. How did they get away with that? Pilo reported in his initial 1991 statement on the day of the crime that he saw Martinez filling up his tires with air and told a pickup truck driver to leave the lot. In his 1999 interview, he insists that he never spoke to Martinez once. He pointed his finger at him when he was going back to his house and directed another officer towards him, but he never spoke to him about seeing a suspect and certainly did not tell him to leave the lot. However, in 2009, Officer Pilo supplied an affidavit in which he claims that right before Jamie's trial, he had a meeting with the state's attorney and the cold case detective in which the state's attorney implied he should lie about being confident he did not see anyone else at the gas station that night. He reported that he refused to lie, but agreed to answer only the questions asked of him. At Jamie's co-defendant's trial, five months before Jamie's trial, Pilo did tell the state's attorney that he saw no one go in the gas station and no one go out. On cross, he told the defense attorney that he pointed at Martinez from across the lot, said something to him, and then sent someone else to talk to him. However, he clarified that he didn't remember Martinez saying he saw anyone in the lot. This defendant was found not guilty. However, five months later at Jamie's trial, after the meeting with the state's attorney, Pilo testifies that he did not see anyone come out of the building, but then elaborates on cross-examination, explaining to defense counsel that he was stressed, this was his first homicide where he was first on scene, he can't remember where he was standing when he called in Martinez's car plates, he can't remember if Martinez turned around in the lot at the same time the supposed suspect was leaving the store, and states that yes, he did in fact speak to Martinez when he saw him on his property. He also tells the state's attorney on redirect that at this time, Martinez did in fact report he saw a suspect fleeing the scene around the corner into the alley. On the defense's recross about this issue, Pilo admits that although Martinez supposedly said that to him, he did not report it back to dispatch at all. And that is how they got away with it. By blurring the narrative slightly, and then inserting a lie to legitimize Martinez as an eyewitness to a suspect fleeing. And you know, the thing about that was it was just a few months earlier that he did that lengthy interview saying every single thing that Martinez did, every single move that he made, and that he had left the parking lot and, and watched him pull out of the parking lot. He, he's trying to make this all all blurry when he testifies, but he knew just a few months earlier, you know, he got up on the stand and he was like, oh, well, I can't remember everything in order. I can't remember everything. You know, it's just kind of fuzzy. I was, you know, distracted. That is not what he said just a few months earlier in his, in his police report. That's what's so frustrating because Jamie's defense attorney didn't make him read that police report, put it in his hand and say, okay, did you write this report? Could you read this? Because I think that would have made all the difference. Yeah. And the, the key thing to pick up on here is that all of a sudden, five months after Susan's trial, where the story has always been that he never even talked to Martinez, and then at Susan's trial says, oh, well, maybe I did say something to him. But the story is always that Martinez never told him he saw anybody there. But then all of a sudden at Jamie's trial, for the first time, he's saying that Martinez did, in fact, say that he saw a suspect fleeing. So Pitzel could have pulled up the statements and said, well, did you actually write that on your statement? Where on here did you ever indicate that before? You're saying that now. And the answer would be nowhere. But um, what he does at trial instead is just say, well, did you report that to dispatch at all? And he says no. So I guess just trying to make him look like a fool, like, you know, uh, the a witness just said he saw the suspect fleeing down an alley and I didn't even tell anybody myself, but that's where it stopped. And you remember the dispatch tape where he says the suspect is leaving, you know, the car is leaving, the car is leaving. You know, if, if this is a real armed robbery, I need to get that license plate number. So he watched him leave from across the street. He did not talk to him. Yes. And it also, that's also very indicative of how excited Pilo was and how he wanted to pursue the suspect, how, you know, he was really in, he was into this. So if he, 10 minutes before, when he thinks Danny Martinez is the suspect and he wants to get the police to go after him, 
uh, and calls it into dispatch and has a fight with the dispatcher about it, then why would he, when there's a second suspect 10 minutes later, just not say anything to anybody? So it's, it, it's not true. Not true. Interestingly, Pilo later writes a letter to Jamie in 2007, calling the state's assertion that Danny Martinez saw anyone else in the parking lot a pile of bullshit. What made Pilo come forward with that information? Jamie wrote Officer Pilo a letter from prison in 2007 requesting his clarification. He supplied him with the trial testimony Pilo gave and that of Martinez. Pilo responded to him after reviewing the transcripts and said it was obvious that Martinez did not see anyone in the lot. And he has, in fact, always wondered how he could claim he did when he was watching the whole time. He explained how it was clear to him that the state's attorney tried to insinuate a suspect could have fled while he was calling in Martinez's plate, while possibly distracted by the radio, and how Jamie's defense attorney did not respond appropriately to that. He insisted that he was not distracted by the radio and Martinez did not come face to face with anyone in that parking lot. Pilo went on to write an affidavit in 2009 confirming these same things, and he outlined two lies he noticed in the transcripts. One being that he did not speak to Martinez to chase him out of the lot or hear him report a possible suspect sighting, and that Martinez did not simply leave the lot and park across the street from his house, meaning he did drive away and pass Officer Williams westward down Empire Street. I just wanted to point out that when that affidavit was filed from Jeff Pilo, McLean County is, is actually saying that he has an axe to grind with McLean County because... You know, he was arrested and, you know, his past and got gotten all that trouble. So they're just dismissing the whole thing as Pilo has an axe to grind. And that's that's why he wrote that affidavit. The problem with that is, is we have all of his statements before he got in trouble with McLean County. Exactly. Yeah. And he was an award winning officer around the time that he wrote all those statements. So, you know, his integrity wasn't questionable until long after this crime occurred. Officer Paul Williams testified at the coroner's inquest and at Jamie's trial. If he was watching the door of the gas station the whole time, why wasn't he used to validate Officer Pilo's testimony that no one had entered or exited the gas station? What happened there? Jamie says that Williams is the glue that holds all of this together. So why has he been dismissed? The state's attorney never asked Williams any detailed questions about Martinez during his testimony at Jamie's trial. He did describe to the state's attorney that he saw Pilo pull up and get out of his car and walk across the street to the lot, that he was focused on the front door, and that he did not see any civilian come in and out of the gas station. On defense's cross, Williams stated that he did not see Pilo call in the plate. He heard him do it over the radio probably because he was watching the door ahead of him. He said he did see people in cars in the lot, but could not say if anyone was putting air in their tires because he was not focused on normal activities. He was focused on the door. He said he did not hear anyone outside or over the radio say that they saw a suspect fleeing the scene. So he was pretty useless to the state's attorney. He did not do anything really one way or the other. Defense counsel never asked him where exactly Pilo was standing and if it was possible for a suspect to flee the scene while he was watching the door and Pilo was watching the same space from a different angle. He was only asked if he heard about a suspect fleeing. This is ineffective assistance of counsel. These questions could have been asked because during the 1991 coroner's inquest, Williams did say that he actually arrived at the same time as Pilo and waited for him to get out on foot to pull closer. He reported he was sitting for 15 to 20 seconds and saw nothing unusual. Later in his 1999 cold case interview, he stated that there was no obstruction of his view while he was sitting in his car watching the door. He saw no movement inside, and no one came in or out of that door. This assertion was not validated at Jamie's trial by the defense. Officer Williams has always stated he arrived at the same time or within seconds of Officer Pilo, and he in fact parked watched Pilo step out of the car and walk towards the southeast corner of the Clark Station lot and stand across the street, exactly where Pilo said he observed Martinez. Williams clearly states he actually heard Pilo call in those plates as he sat there watching the front door 
and he saw Pilo cross Empire Street, so he decided to pull forward into the Clark Station lot himself. As Jamie said, Williams is the glue that holds this all together, and he has been repeatedly dismissed so that Martinez's statement can be legitimized. Williams was Officer of the Year in 2004, according to the local newspaper, The Pantograph. By this time, he had received the Chief's Merit Award three times for large-scale investigations and was regarded as an outstanding and dedicated professional and police officer. Surely he is a credible witness. We hope you enjoyed this first episode. It was a lot of information, a lot of names, times, and movements. But you know what? It gets worse. It took a lot of big and little lies to frame Jamie for a murder he absolutely did not commit, and a lot of finagling to convince a jury of his peers that he could have done it. It took 54 witnesses. We named three today. Are you ready for more? This is going to be a long ride, and we don't have all the questions and answers, so we want to hear from you. If it's documents or clarification you need, let us know. If it's questions or ideas, we want to hear those too. On our Snowfiles Facebook group, ask Jamie anything there. He wants to respond to you directly. No more rumors. Ask the man yourself. He's eagerly waiting. If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential. In our next episode, we'll cover Danny Martinez's actual court testimony, and you'll see where he was once absolutely sure it wasn't Jamie, and then where he's suddenly 100% sure it was Jamie while he takes the stand for the final time. How did he get away with it? We've got new evidence. That's next time on Snow Files.